Thanks for listening to The Vine. We're a new church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this sermon helps you in doing that. This Sunday is Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not get weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. As was shared earlier, uh, we are beginning a new sermon series called The Hope Effect. And uh, I'm so excited about this because it, uh, it's perfect for after Easter. When Easter reminds us of the, of the surprising power and presence of hope, uh, for us to spend, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at this. And our true hope is at the end of these seven weeks that you would experience more of the presence and power of hope in your life. And so this sermon series is going to be different than what we typically do. Typically, we uh, focus on scripture study, and uh, this, there, of course, will be scripture in this, but this will be more focused on practical application. So we're going to be experimenting with our life uh, and experimenting with how to infuse more hope into our life. Uh, we have heard of something called an IQ test, like intelligence quotient test, a couple years ago, there was emotional quotient was one of the things that became popular to talk about. And this series is really about your hope quotient. Like, where, where are you with hope right now? Like, how, how much is hope a part of your, your mind, your thinking? How much of, of it is filling your heart? And the reason why this is important is because we really believe that hope changes everything. That people literally live and die on whether or not they experience hope. And so for us, for, to grow into being people of hope is really, really, really significant. And so because it's very practical, we're doing something that we typically don't do. Uh, we passed out sermon guides because we're going to go through a lot of content. And, uh, and so uh, we're really excited about it. And someone asked, do we have to turn this in? Is this a test? And the answer is, if you feel the need to turn it in, uh, no, this is really for you to have. And so for you to jot down some notes. And again, the goal of this is not for you to sit down at lunch and talk about how, how great of a message it was, because I'm sure that's what you always talk about at lunch. The goal of this sermon series is for you to experiment with your life, for you to see if you truly can experience hope. And so if you would like to, we actually have desktops here. And uh, we need a lot of WD-40 on these desktops. It sounds like uh, wheelchairs are just turning corners and we're in a retirement community all of a sudden. Um, so feel free to let's all do it right now if you would like. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's awesome. How painful is that? So next time, instead of handing out just these, we're going to hand out WD-40. Everyone's going to get a little WD-40. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so the way the sermon series is going to be, oh man, is uh, each week we're going to talk about a different foundation to experience more hope. So each week we're going to have a different 
different practice for how we can experience greater hope. And we'll also look at a different uh, bi- biblical character, a different person in Scripture, and how they exemplified this. And so uh, this week, we're going to look at the person of Jesus. It's always a good answer. Uh, and we're going to look at our first foundation, how to experience greater hope. We experience greater hope when we fill our soul. So just kind of just stop right here. The idea of your soul is kind of foreign to a lot of us. We think that we, we are very mindful of our bodies. Uh, we take care of our bodies. We're, uh, we know where ideal body shape might be, ideal body weight. Uh, and we are acknowledge our minds, that we, are, we have habits and practices of thinking. But what about your soul? This is the part of who you are that's a deep mystery. It's deeply embedded inside of you. It's some place that no one else can touch, no one else can get to. And there are times where we can be honest and say our souls are healthy. And there are other times when we, we can acknowledge that our souls really are depleted, that our souls are unhealthy. And what we believe is that for us to be people of hope, we have to be soul-filled people. We have to be soul-full people. And because if we have depleted our soul, if our souls are tired and weary, we will not be people of hope. It just, it just won't work out that way. But this is the gift of God, is that God has created you to be soul-filled people. And the interesting thing is this is a gift that only God can give us. So Isaiah 40, we heard this earlier. It talked about, have you not heard, do you not know, but that this is the gift of God. So he gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Who feels weary and weak today? This is what God gives you. So even youth grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those who hope is set on who God is, the provision in Jesus, their strength will will be renewed. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is how we experience uh, souls that are full, is we place our hope in who God is and the provision of, of God's great love for us. And the interesting thing is oftentimes when Scripture speaks about our soul, the way it will describe the soul is thirst. That's like one of the most common words that go alongside your soul is the word thirst. So, so even the psalmist said, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. So our souls are created to be thirsty. And uh, this is actually a gift from God. One of the things that Jesus did, he oftentimes talked about this, the thirsty soul. One time he got, met with a woman, this is in John 4, he met with a woman, a Samaritan woman, and he found her at a well, and she was thirsty. She was there in the middle of the day where most women aren't there, and she was there because she was an outcast. Uh, she was looked down upon because of her relationships with men. And so Jesus, I love how Jesus entered into a conversation with her. So in verse 13 of John 4, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them 
will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's not wanting to have to to come out into public, come out into scorn and shame. And so give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty anymore. And the interesting thing is that some people might see God being someone who gives us shame and guilt to control us. That's kind of how I grew up. And it wasn't taught to me, but somehow it's just some, I just learned it, is that God really communicates with me through shame and guilt. And that's how God directs my life, is through the power of shame. And I love here the gentle love of Jesus who looks at this woman and doesn't say, you need to, you need to change your relationship with men. You need, to, you need to get yourself right with God. He looks at her and goes to the heart of the matter and says, you are thirsty and you're coming to the wrong well. You're coming to the broken, empty well, but this is what I can give you. The thirst that you have for love and acceptance that you find in your relationship with men This is the gift that I can give you. I can give you a spring to well up inside of your soul that will never leave you thirsty. Here's one of the greatest surprises for the thirst of our soul. And we are thirsty people. Some of us, it's not our relationships and acceptance that we, we are thirsty for. We are thirsty for power. We're thirsty for esteem. We're thirsty for uh, approval of other people. And the interesting thing with this is that your thirst is not a bad thing. Your thirst is actually something that God put inside of you to direct you. It's almost like a compass for who you are meant to be. C.S. Lewis said it like this when it comes to our thirst. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday, a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You were created to be thirsty so that you would take your thirst and go to the only place where it can be truly satisfied. And that's the place that God created for you and for God to meet. So this isn't a cruel trick by a needy God. This was so that we would learn to live in friendship with Jesus. We would learn to turn to Jesus with every need that we have so that our souls could be filled and so that we could be people of hope because of that. So that we could have a a full soul and be people of hope. So this week we're talking about how do you fill your soul? How do you return to that well who is Jesus And this morning, I want to talk about five supply lines for how you can grow your soul and restore it and fill it with Jesus. The first one is to invest in your own growth. What are you doing right now to invest in your soul, to care for your soul? This isn't selfish. If your battery is not fully charged, you're not going to be the best version of you that you can be. You're not going to be the best version of a husband or a wife, a father, a mother, a friend, an employee, a leader. 
if your battery, if your soul is not filled, you're not going to be the best version of you. So to begin with, you have to prioritize taking care of your soul. As unfamiliar as we, as the soul might be in our life, that might be uh, indicating how little we prioritize it. So what are you doing to care for your own soul, to actually to invest in your own growth? Jesus demonstrated why this is so important. In Mark 1, we have this depiction of who Jesus is. All-powerful, son of God. This is what he often did. Very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he, where he prayed. Simon, his companion, went looking for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Yet Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I've come. This is why I'm here. Is that everyone, even though everyone was looking for Jesus, he had a tendency to go off, to be alone. What's interesting is just before this passage, Jesus had like this huge breakthrough in ministry where he healed people, the word got out about him, everyone was looking for him. And if you and I were to write this story with ourselves in the place of Jesus, we probably would think at this moment, this is when we actually lock in, we're gonna ramp it up. We're gonna start gathering everyone together. We're gonna start sending out this movement, Right? That's what I think most churches would do. Okay, we have this huge gathering now. Let's take it to the next level. And Jesus, he disappears. Why? I think it's because he needed it. Like he actually needed to care for his soul. He was tired. He was weary. And so he said, you know, it's good for me to, to get away. I think Jesus would be fired from most churches. Right as my men was picking up. All right, I'm gone for a while. No, 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 no. This is not a time for Sabbath. But for Jesus, he knows that something else is more important than productivity and momentum. What's more important is his connection to his father and for him to live from the place of his soul. In Luke 5, 16, uh, this is another description of Jesus. But Jesus often would withdraw and would go to the lonely places and pray. None of this really sounds that attractive to us, to vacate, to withdraw, to go to lonely places. And some of us have a real problem with prayer. But this is how Jesus filled his soul, is he made that a priority. I think there is like this new fear or, or phobia within our culture of loneliness and emptiness. We have a hard time letting empty space in our life just be empty. We want to fill it. We want to fill it with entertainment, uh, connectivity, uh, on electronics, social media. We have a hard time just being, just being with God. But it's in that very place where we might actually remember that we have a soul that needs to be filled, that needs to be cared for. So the goal for this time of prioritizing your soul is about formation, not about acquiring new knowledge. It's not about information. It's about formation. That's the first one. Secondly, don't underestimate the power of worship. So true worship is one that happens from the soul. It's not from routine or obligation or duty. We don't worship because it's Sunday and it's 10, 15. I would say 10, but for this crowd, 
10.15. Uh, and this is what we do. We worship. We actually worship because we want to express our love, our admiration, our need for who God is. This is what worship is. Worship is an expression of love. Matthew 22 said how important love is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord with everything you are, including your soul. So when we come to worship, we come with our souls open to God. It's funny, if you were to ask most pastors and worship leaders about Sunday, many of us feel a lot of pressure to orchestrate some sort of experience for you. Like, is it ready? Do we have, do we have everything perfectly uh, prepared for it? Are all the electronics going to work? Is, is the message going to be okay? Uh, I would say good, but I'm just gonna, we'll just start with okay. Um, and it's, this is fine. That's, that's fine for us to work hard in that, in that way. But what is really interesting is that worship is not about you. It's not about me. When we worship, our focus really is on God. We gather here because we know that we need, need to set our gaze on Jesus again. We gather because, because we have so much to be grateful for. Why wouldn't we go to God and say, thank you, God. Thank you for being, just like we sang, early, sang earlier, thank you for being such a savior. We, we, we want to give God our love. We want to give God our gratitude. We want to delight God's heart. Do you know that God, his heart is affected by your worship? When you gather and you sing and you, and you pray, that this is something that God, his heart goes, yes, there's my child. There, there they are. So it's a surprise that when we actually do this, when we actually go into worship, not to see what, what we can get, but we gather in worship to set our focus on Jesus, that what actually ends up happening is our souls are filled. When we don't come into worship as a consumer, we actually come here to delight who God is, that we actually have filled souls. And why is this? Well, I think it's because authentic worship, true worship reconnects us with God. James 4, 8 says, come near to God and he will come near to you. So when we come and worship, we open ourselves up to God. God loves to fill us. Secondly, authentic worship restores our perspective. The psalmist said, Psalm 73 said, when I tried to understand all of this, all about life, and life can be really confusing. When I tried to understand all of this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. There's times where for us, when we come into worship and we set our gaze on Jesus, that the windshield in front of our life gets cleaned and we actually get to see life differently, more clearly. And thirdly, authentic worship rebuilds our confidence. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Psalm uh, 34.4 says that. Why is that? Why does, why does worship give us confidence? Well, if our gaze is set on who Jesus is, then we actually know the provision that's been set aside for us. That we actually have confidence that the same God who's been faithful for generation and generation, that the same God we're worshiping now is walking with me throughout my life, that this gives us confidence to continue forward. And something that's interesting is, so if worship is so important for us to fill our soul, uh, this is kind of an interesting stat. used to be when when... I grew up, I know uh, it's not saying that much far back, but when I grew up, it felt like most people went to church 
like maybe three out of four weekends out of a month, like the active churchgoers. And my, no, my grandparents' generation, they would come back early on vacations just to go to church. Uh, the average attendance for uh, an active churchgoer now is one Sunday a month. And so pastors talk about this, oh, it's not what it used to be, you know, to have the expectation that a bunch of people are going to come every single Sunday. And so for me, church attendance is not the most important thing. What's more important is how, do, how might this affect our soul when we pop in occasionally in worship and we don't experience the power of coming into this community in need of forgiveness and grace, to come into this experience, remember the story of this table of how we are hungry for something and Jesus has provided, to actually come get together in worship and, and to lift up God's name, to actually come together in worship with the expectation that God might speak to us again. Uh, for me, when you put worship in that context, it's harder to miss out on it. So that's the second point. Third point is how we fill our souls as we unleash the Bible into our life. So what is your relationship with God's, uh, God's word? What is your relationship like with that? Is it a fixture of your life? Is it, is it a safety net you go to? Uh, because our home has mold in it right now, we're staying in an Airbnb. And I noticed last night as I was going to bed that on, there's, uh, there's enough paraphernalia around this home that would make me think that uh, Whoever's living in this home is probably not a churchgoer. Uh, we walked Dylan into her, her new bedroom in this uh, rental home, and there's decorative skulls all around her bedroom and nice silk sheets, uh, which thoroughly grossed me out. Uh, there's a huge, like, huge TV in her bedroom, so she was like, can I stay here forever? And I said, no, and we're going to bleach you down before you take, <laughs> take you back home. Uh, but it was interesting in this weird, bizarre home, I found this really uh, dusty uh, King James Version Bible on the very bottom, uh, underneath the statue of Buddha. Uh, I found it on the bottom of the cabinet. And I just wondered, what's the, I wonder what, how often this Bible is used and why this Bible is even in this home. We have a, a, uh, some of us have an awkward relationship with God's word. But what if we saw God's word as an enduring legacy for how God meets with people, how God has met with people throughout generations, men and women, and changed and transformed their life. And so when we open up scripture, we actually are entering into that story that God is changing and transforming my life as well. Listen to what the gift of God's word is meant to be for us. This is Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. Notice the, the message of thirst again. This thirsty tree that's been planted wisely. Why? Because it's planted next to streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. This means that when someone has learned to, to meditate on God's word and to obey it, to think about it, to walk with it, that their life has been planted well and in and out of season when things are going great and when things are falling apart, there are still leaves and fruit. Why? Because we have planted ourselves next to God's word. Another beautiful imagery that is taken is Matthew. This is a word from Jesus. Matthew 7, 24. 
Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Uh, as P, I know a lot of people right now are building homes. I have some friends of mine who are building homes. They're very mindful of how they're doing it. They're very careful. They're studying the sediment, the, the soil, to make sure it doesn't expand too much. And for many of us, where are we building our life? If it's not based on the promises of God, the reminders of who God is, it, it might not be on the right foundation. So when you unleash the Bible into your life, you become like a tree near a stream. You're like someone who's building their house on a rock. I know for me personally, I am so grateful for how Scripture has taught and instructed me. Uh, we wouldn't have planted this church personally for Jen and I. We wouldn't have planted this church had not God sh- showed up in particular passages and like truly uh, direct us to plant this church. There were specific passages that God brought up that directed us to, to plant this community alongside a lot of other people. There have been other times in my life where this gift of scripture has been, I'm about to make a really bad decision and a friend brings me God's word and says, hey, here's something to consider. You might want to turn from this. And the gift of God's word directed me in, back into a life with Jesus. There's been other times in my life where it felt like things were shaky. Uh, almost three years ago, uh, last week, our daughter started having a, a tick in her, in her head that she would just it was kind of cute. We were video, I remember videotaping it thinking it was kind of cute. And all of a sudden, that cute little tick became uh, epilepsy and seizures. And within a matter of 24 hours, we were Adele's children, and they were using words like brain damage, and she probably won't live a normal life. And, uh, I mean, our world just shut down. And it felt like thing, everything was shaky. But we had... We had some promises that became an anchor for us. We had some promises that became a rock for which we could stand on because it felt like everything was shaky, everything was sifting underneath us. And for that chapter of our life, there were certain passages that gave us hope. And had it not been for God's word, it would have been so hard to walk through that chapter of our life. But thank God for the word of hope that we get to have. It really was a rock for which we built our life on. So um, on your sermon notes, if you were to look at the back of it, some of us, we don't know where to start with Scripture. And so uh, under the Tools for Change, there are a couple of resources. If you're unfamiliar with where to start, of how to unleash the Bible into your life, there are some great, uh, great tools for you that will help you in doing that. So uh, that is the gift of Scripture for us. Fourthly, Uh, How do we have a supply line of hope in our life? Well, we build great relationships. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because we're going to have a whole week on relationships. But the reality is we were created to be in relationship with one another. So let me ask you this question. Uh, For those people who, who know scripture, what was the first thing that God saw that wasn't good? Many of us, we might think of, well, it was when Adam and Eve ate the fruit but actually, there's something before that. There's something before that was when God saw Adam and he declared, it is not good for man to be alone. That was the first thing in all of creation that God saw and he was, all right, this is not the way that it's been designed. It is not good for us to walk alone. It still is not good for us to be alone. Why? Because we were created in the image of a relational God. So the way in which we are designed is to be in relationship with one another and with God. 
So we can't go alone and be people of hope because we weren't created that way. And even Jesus prayed for you. He prayed this prayer for you in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. He was talking about the disciples. But I also pray for those who believe in me through their message. That includes you here, 2017. That all of them may be one. Out of everything that Jesus could have prayed for, the thing that was important for you and for me is that we could experience unity in relationship. That as a church, that we could be people who are experiencing oneness, who are walking through life together. I love this African proverb. Uh, this African proverb says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. If you want to go far, go with others. Be people of hope. That is how we go far in life. And the fifth supply line is we have to listen to the right voice. We know this, that there's certain voices in our world that drain us of hope. There's certain people in our life that we walk out of there, we just feel like we're like 10 pounds heavier. Ugh. Maybe we, we, we listen to voices and all of a sudden we are struck with fear again. We doubt ourselves. We forget our story with Jesus. And then there's other voices, voices that tell us stories of hope. So how do you learn which voice to listen to? How do you learn which is the voice of Christ speaking to you? So uh, I'll have a volunteer. Uh, you, uh, in the denim jacket, could you stand up, please? Ma'am, is this your first time here at the Covington Middle School with us all? Okay, great. Welcome. Welcome. It's great to have you here. All right, so I'm going to tell you something about, uh, about you. I, don't, I hope you don't mind me. You seem like you're really outgoing. Um, so if I had this room stand up and shuffle and move around, and I was blindfolded, and I had you talk for 10 seconds, I could tell you where this, what's your name? I could tell you where Lynn was in the room, just by 10 seconds. I know it's a magic trick, right? But if I had you shuffle, and she moved, and I was blindfolded, I could tell you where Lynn, Lynn was. The reason why? She's my mom. <laughs> Hi, mom. Okay, you can sit down, mom. That's what you call hazing. Uh, the reason why is because I have learned to listen to her voice. For 38 years, I have, I have heard her pray for me. I've heard her like instruct me. I've heard her laugh. I've heard her uh, tell me uh, just gifts of wisdom. I've, ha I've had her console me when I've been just depleted. That's the voice of a mother, and I've learned to listen to that voice because I've found it to be trustworthy and true. I can pick it out in a sea of voices because I have learned to listen to that voice. That takes time. So when it comes to Jesus, we have to learn, to learn the voice of Jesus so much so to, to hear it in a sea of voices that we have in our world and our life. Even Jesus said this in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them they, and they follow me. How do we learn to listen to the right voices? We have to walk with Jesus in such a way to pick up when someone is speaking words of hope. And all of a sudden, we turn our attention to them. So this is, happens after we have been with Jesus. And Jesus' voice always is a voice of hope in our life. So those are the five supply lines for you. And the reason why they're important is when we allow these five supply lines to fuel our soul, we become people of hope. And we cannot become people of hope when our souls are depleted, 
when they're empty. Just Here's a story just to kind of depict it, and we'll finish with this. Uh, this uh, man and his um, wife were in England. They were uh, tourists, and they were walking along a hillside, and they saw a, a farmer with a sickle, and he was cutting down the grain in his fields. And what they, as they sat there were watching him, after 10 minutes of cutting, they would stop, and they would spend five minutes sharpening the blade once again. And then they would spend 10 minutes of cutting. And then after that, five more minutes. And this man grew just annoyed at how much time it took to sharpen. 20 minutes every hour of sharpening this sickle. And he looked at it and wondered, why would they be so inefficient? Why not just keep swinging? Why not just swing harder? Well, the reality is because with every single swing of the sickle, the the blade becomes duller. And with each time it increases its dullness, the work becomes harder and less productive. And so the result is you end up having to swing harder and swinging faster. And friends, we live in a world that does not honor sharpening. We live in a world that just honors that cutting. But you see, cutting and sharpening are two in one. So many of us are weary and we're tired and we're swinging harder and harder to make it through this life. When in reality, perhaps, Jesus wants to slow you down, wants to have you vacate, to come with me to the empty places, the lonely places. I know you're exhausted. I know your souls are depleted. And the problem is when that happens and you have to keep on swinging, you lose hope. Yet Jesus might say, come away with me. I can restore you. Bring to me your thirsty soul because I'm faithful. And I will give you hope.